This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. I am reading the revised and expanded edition dedicated to P.T. Bauer, forward by Gary North. Appendix 4, The Background of Productive Christians, by Gary North. Perhaps the most striking feature of the picture of the shift in perspective of capitalists from the long-run multi-generation view of the founder of a family business to a short-run, one-lifetime outlook of the corporation man is the extent to which the bourgeoisie, besides educating its own enemies, allows itself in turn to be educated by them. It absorbs the slogans of current radicalism and seems quite willing to undergo a process of conversion to a creed hostile to its very existence. Haltingly and grudgingly it concedes, in part, the implications of that creed. This would be most astonishing, and indeed very hard to explain, were it not for the fact that the typical bourgeoisie is rapidly losing faith in his own creed. They talk and plead, or hire people to do it for them. They snatch at every chance of compromise. They are ever ready to give in. They never put up a fight under the flag of their own ideals. The only explanation for the meekness we observe is that the bourgeois order is no longer the bourgeois order no longer makes any sense to the bourgeoisie itself, and that when all is said and nothing is done, it does not really care. Joseph Schumpeter Schumpeter nineteen forty two from the book Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, page one sixty one. Schumpeter blamed the rise of the limited liability corporation and the parallel decline of the family-run business as the primary causes of this decline of faith. He should have looked more carefully. The decline of faith in a providential world run by a personal God was equally responsible. The rise of Darwinism, with its world devoid of cosmic purpose, undercut Christian civilization in Protestant nations, where Darwinism became the ruling idea by 1900 among intellectuals. Also, he should have recognized the two-pronged attack by Darwinism on the idea of God's providence. The first prong was its denial of planning and design in the advent of our world, its assertion of cosmic impersonalism. The second prong was visible from the beginning of Darwinism, the assertion of a new sovereignty, a new source of cosmic purpose, man the next predestinator, and more specifically, man's agent of predestination, the planning state. The humanists long ago abandoned faith in any version of the doctrine of creation by God. They captured the institutions of higher learning very early in this battle for the minds of men. Thus, as Christian denominations and Christian colleges began to seek academic respectability, 
they made it a requirement that their professors, and in some cases candidates for admission to theological seminaries, earn academic degrees from these humanistic institutions. It was as if Martin Luther had required all candidates for the Protestant ministry to earn advanced degrees in Roman Catholic universities before becoming ordained. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul requiring that all candidates for a preaching ministry first attend Athens University for their bachelor degrees and then journey to Pharisee Theological Seminary in Jerusalem for advanced training? Yet this is precisely what modern denominations frequently require, and virtually all Christian colleges and universities so-called do the same. They demand academic certification by Satan's institutions. To say that Christians suffer from a crippling academic inferiority complex is putting it mildly. The result has been universally the teaching of Darwinism in seminary and Christian college classrooms. Sometimes this has been blatant, as in the case of the prestige divinity schools associated with humanistic major universities, the big-name schools that our little backwater Christian seminaries love to send their young men to, and then bring them back to teach all nicely certified. You can almost hear the president of the denominational college or seminary introducing Professor Smith to some high-rolling donor. Yes, sir... Dr. Smith here went to Harvard Divinity School and actually survived with his faith intact. But he didn't survive with his faith intact. And neither will his students at Laodicea Theological Seminary. The Darwinism he teaches will be warmed over Darwinism, debased, inconsistent Darwinism, from the point of view of the prestige humanistic schools of higher learning, but Darwinism nonetheless. His version may be called liberation theology. It may be called socially concerned Christianity. It may not be tinged with outright Marxism, but it will be Darwinism, faith in the predestinating state. The Cider Phenomenon In seminary after seminary, Dr. Ronald Cider is being invited to preach or pitch his version of the predestinating state. He is is being received enthusiastically in much the same way that Father Groppi, the now defrocked Roman Catholic priest, who at last report in 1980 was a bus driver in Milwaukee, was received on Christian college campuses in the late 1960s. Groppi was a master guilt manipulator with a turnaround collar, a radical proponent of race war and revolution, who was defrocked by the Roman Catholic Church only when he decided to get married. The Church's hierarchy tolerated his economics and political theory, but marriage was just a bit too much. His appearances were always marked by wildly enthusiastic crowds at Protestant and state-supported colleges. Why did this Roman Catholic verbal revolutionary receive warm welcomes by Protestant faculty members and humanist faculty members. Because Groppi was preaching a popular brand of humanism in 1969 and 70, the pre-Kent state humanism of college radicalism without personal risk, which his listeners shared. 
The confrontation between the National Guard and the students at Kent State University in Ohio ended the college violence of the 1964-70 era. As an old-time New Deal liberal college classmate of mine predicted it would the week of the shootings. Too risky for them now, he said. They might get their dot 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 shot off. The following semester, all over the world, campus violence ceased. And a decade and a half later, it is still quiet on the college campuses. The market for soft-core radicalism revived on the Christian college circuit in the late 1970s. There was a real need for a quiet, self-effacing, kindly preacher of class conflict, conflict and social socialist wealth redistribution. The schools are still staffed with Darwinists, and their faith is still intact. They trust the predestinating state, not the free market economy, but they needed a spokesman who was uniquely gifted to sell the ideological product on the post-Kent state campus. Where there is demand, the free market will eventually respond. The market produced the supply. Dr. Sider. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger is, the only one of a, is only one of a series of books designed to call into question the ability of free market institutions coupled with Christian charity to achieve the economic goals of the kingdom of God. The Christian Reform Church's Task Force on World Hunger released its report, and he had compassion on them, the Christian and World Hunger, 1978. Its thesis is as bad as its cover's typography. Not enough capital letters and not enough capitalism. World Vision produced Stanley Mooneyham's what do you say to a hungry world? 1975. What you say is what David Chilton's book is all about. But by far, Rich Christians is the most influential of these books. It was co-published by InterVarsity Press, the neo-evangelical Protestant publishing house, which sells especially to Christian students, and the Paulist Press, a liberal Roman Catholic publishing house. The ecumenical impulse that was present in Father Grappi's interdenominational rallies for masochistic Caucasians is with us still. Today's radicalism is simply soft core, more in tune with the laid-back doormat psychology of modern Protestant pietism. Verbally stomp me, whip me with guilt, make me feel that it's all America's fault— I'll even send you money just as soon as Dad sends me my check for the next semester. Sadly, Dad will indeed send him the money, as Dads have been doing since the days of Aristophanes, the Greek playwright of the 4th century B.C. who wrote a satire on the relationship between a father and his son who was attending the school of Socrates in his play Clouds. Rushdoony is correct. What we face is the politics of guilt and pity. The North-Sider Debate No comprehensive criticism of rich Christians appeared from 1977 until the publication of the first edition of this book. In fact, I am unaware of any published criticism of the book prior to 1981. This indicates just how intellectually bankrupt the supposed defenders of Christian orthodoxy really are. 
they were unable or unwilling to challenge either his theology or his economics. More than this, the students and faculties of Christian colleges and seminaries actively recruited Sider to speak. This even included the bastions of Calvinistic scholarship, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, my old alma mater, and Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, which Chilton attended. These schools are rapidly abandoning their commitment to traditional Calvinism and are becoming neo-evangelical in social and political perspective. The fact that the conservative financial supporters of both schools refuse to pull the plug in protest, the only kind of protest that seminary presidents respect or respond to, testifies to the applicability of Schumpeter's analysis to the bourgeois Christian world, and not merely to the bourgeois business world. In October 1980, Scott Hahn a student at the Gordon-Conwell School of Theology in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, phoned me. He had the responsibility as a member of a student committee in charge of scheduling academic programs to bring speakers to the campus. He asked me if I would come to speak. I declined. He offered an honorarium. I still declined. My time schedule was simply too jammed up. I was about to tell him that the only way he could get me to come to Massachusetts to speak to a group of students was to offer me an opportunity to debate Ron Sider, when he told me that he was inviting me to come to debate Ron Sider. At that point, I not only agreed, I said I would do it without any honorarium. Now, my idea of the goal of this debate was to win. It was not to be a friendly exercise. Ron Sider's theology and economics, if accepted by the educated elite of Christians, let alone a majority, will reinforce the forces of domestic and international socialism that are threatening the survival of the West, the conflict that Solzhenitsyn has said the West is rapidly losing. Thus, my debate with Ron Sider represented a clash between two incompatible theories of civilization, one based on personal responsibility, self-discipline, voluntary economic exchange, and biblical law, versus another which is based on statism, political centralization, and theft by majority vote. This would be no sharing of ideas between Christians. This was and is all-out intellectual and theological warfare. It is the latest round in a war that has been going on since 1525, when Martin Luther attacked the savagery of the revolutionary Anabaptist. I see myself as a neo-Puritan and Sider as forthrightly an Anabaptist. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the economic thought of the New England Puritans, and he wrote his on an aspect of Anabaptist history. <coughs> the Anabaptist, Baptize Again, movement, was an early offshoot of the Protestant Reformation. They did not baptize infants, and they required rebaptism to join their congregations. There are two traditions in the history of the Anabaptist movement. The first is one of revolution, communism, and violence. The second is pacifist, communalist, and pietist. The second tradition is more familiar to us since it is represented by the Mennonites and the Amish, 
who seemed somewhat quaint, posing no threat to society. But the earlier Anabaptists were anything but quaint. They were mass murderers. From 1520 to 1535, in what is now Germany, hordes of them challenged the civil order, and they began a revolution. Jan Bokelsen, John of Leyden, a 26-year-old tailor, and John Mathis, a baker, led a proletarian revolution in the city of Munster in Westphalia, which they captured in 1533. The intensity of the revolution grew. Communal property was imposed. Then a new Zion was announced by the prophet John Leyden, who then became the king. He established polygamy, selecting several wives for himself. The churches were burned. Leyden established a reign of terror. He announced, Impiety prevails everywhere. It is therefore necessary that a new family of holy persons should be founded, enjoying without distinction of sex the gift of prophecy and skill to interpret revelation. Hence they need no learning, for the internal word is more than the outward expression. No Christian must be suffered to engage in a legal process to hold civil office, to take an oath, or to hold any private property. But all things must be in common. Apostles were sent out from Munster to deliver this message to all of Europe. The city fell to the regional civil authorities after a bloody battle in 1535. Is Cider a representative of the revolutionary tradition or the pacifist tradition of Anabaptism? Is it possible to find elements of both in his books? He sometimes speaks as if he favors only voluntary political pressures to be brought against the present world's institutional structures. At other times, however, he sounds like a revolutionary. He certainly adopts revolutionary terms throughout his writings. There is no question that socialism must use state coercion to extract people's wealth from them. The kind of coercion the Internal Revenue Service has used on occasion against Amish farmers for who refuse on religious grounds to pay their Social Security taxes because they oppose all forms of insurance and rely on the charity of the brethren. Ultimately, he wants the state, possibly the United Nations, to extract wealth from rich Christians and anyone else who might make more than $1,800 per year, as you have read. He is not calling his followers to drop out of society and become communal farmers who use no electrical or gasoline-powered equipment. He is not calling them to join him in the Amish country of Pennsylvania for a life of hard labor in the fields. His listeners read books and pamphlets. They are not people who expect to get their hands dirty. The chosen topic for my debate with Cider was not resolved that Christians should let the world take care of itself while we depart to our simple agricultural lifestyles in peace. The debate topic was, resolved, Christians have an obligation to the poor. The question really was, confiscatory taxes or the tithe? Having accepted the challenge, I then sat down to think about the best way to win if not the evening's debate, then at least the long-term debate. I had discussed already with David Chilton the possibility of producing a book refuting cider, 
and he had been researching it for some time. Now I decided to go ahead with the project. I called him and told him that I needed a finished book for the first Monday in April 1981, the night of the debate. I figured that Sider would not expect someone to have a book written to attack his position at the debate. Most people do not take debates this seriously. I do. Chilton was ready to write. We had to get it into print in six months. We did it from start to finish. Several hundred copies of the book were delivered to Scott Hahn at Gordon-Conwell during the week prior to the debate. I instructed him to set them out on a table outside the lecture hall on the night of the debate. I sold them for one dollar each, nothing like price competition to get everyone to buy. As it turned out, we sold about 250 copies, one copy for every two people who attended the debate. Poor Ron, he was selling his rich Christians for three seventy-five, and they weren't moving very fast. Of course, most of the students had probably already bought copies in the campus bookstore. I shall never forget Sider's response as he started, as he stared at the book as it sat in front of me on at the debate table. How long has this been out? He asked. About twenty-four hours, I replied. Actually, it had been out, as far as the buying public was concerned, about 30 minutes. <laughs> I also handed out four page, a four-page summary of my position, which included a page of compare and contrast citations from Cider and the Bible, extracted from the introductory pages that begin each chapter of Chilton's book. Furthermore, in the week before the debate, Dr. John Robbins of the Trinity Foundation had released a four-page newsletter, Ronald Sider Contra Dia. He had sent copies to Han, unbeknownst to me, for distribution at the debate. They, too, were available free of charge to the students. The debate was rousing. The students at Gordon-Conwell were and are overwhelmingly favorable to Sider's position. This is not surprising, so are all but a handful of faculty members. One is regarded by some of his students as farther to the left than Sider is himself. This is not information the seminary's administration is anxious to have publicized to donors, although it really makes little difference. The school's financial supporters, like the donors to Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, will still pour in the funds that will be used to undermine everything they say they believe in. They are perfectly willing to finance their own destruction, and yours, and mine just so long as their donations are tax-deductible. Unfortunately, Schumpeter's analysis holds up. The results of the Northsider debate, as far as the campus was concerned, was minimal. Not many people had their minds changed. This was predictable. The lines were drawn along long before Sider and I arrived. I confronted them with the testimony of the Bible on state-financed welfare, there shouldn't be any, and the illegitimacy of liberation theology. What I really was after was a cassette tape of the confrontation. I wanted to flush Sider into the open to get him to reveal what his theological position really represents. In this, I think I was successful. Readers can make up their own minds by ordering the tapes and listening to the whole debate. The two cassette set sells for $10.00. The set is sold by Dominion Tapes, Post Office Box 7999, Tyler, Texas 75711.
11. <coughs> Marxism. The issue, of course, is Marxism. When I wrote my now out-of-print book, Marx's Religion of Revolution, The Doctrine of Creative Destruction, Craig Press, 1968, I argue that the impulse behind Marxism has always been religious in nature. This has been confirmed by the extraordinary book by James Billington, Fire in the Minds of Men, Origins of the Revolutionary Faith, Basic Books, 1980. Billington, a former Harvard and Princeton historian, is the head of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., his academic credentials are impeccable for those who care about such matters, and the work is a masterpiece of historical scholarship. In it, he argues that the two main sources of revolutionary socialism in the 19th century were the occult underground, the secret societies, and journalism. This was the true faith, a religion of revolution. I was first informed of the existence of the book, by David Chilton. Marxism possesses, for the moment, the three key features that are necessary for any world-transforming ideology. One, an historical dynamic. Two, a doctrine of law. And three, a doctrine of predestination. To some extent, this faith is dying inside the nations where Marxism has been politically triumphant. But in the third world, this faith is the driving secular religion of our day. They believe in historical progress. A stage theory of social development, the so-called dialectic of history. They believe in a unique law order which enables them to identify and promote Marxist art, Marxist social structures, Marxist genetics, that is, the ill-fated Lysenko Affair of the 1940s through the 60s, and so forth. Finally, they believe in the inevitability of socialism, with the imp impersonal forces of history guiding human institutions into the socialist stage of history. As an intellectual force, the Marxist movement has been almost irresistible. Christianity offers an alternative. It does not offer a doctrine of historical progress based on class conflict, but a theory of history based on the ethical conflict between Satan and God, and between Satan's forces and God's forces. It offers a law order based on the creative work of God, not on the work of impersonal, undirected forces. It offers a doctrine of God's providence, not a doctrine of impersonal, historical inevitability. The warfare of this age is between Christianity and Marxism. Christianity is Marxism's chief rival. When Christians affirm all three positions, historical, eschatological optimism, a revelation, a revelational law order, the biblical law code, and the sovereignty of God, providence, they can successfully challenge the Marxist religion of revolution. The problem is certain intellectuals who hold essentially Marxist presuppositions about the nature of historical development have succeeded in becoming spokesmen for and leaders of the church. Liberation theology is only the latest of these Marxist incursions 
into the ranks of the church. These infiltrators have mastered the language of orthodoxy, just as the heretical followers of the Swiss theologian Karl Barth did from 1920 on. The Barthians were successful in capturing most of the denominational seminaries in the 1950s or earlier. The liberation theologians are simply following the strategy of the now-eclipsed Bardians. What is the secret of their success? Their secret is this. Use Christian terminology in order to promote Marxist and socialist goals. These infiltrators assume that the faithful few will still send their money to the seminaries, church boards, and the mission fields will never know the difference. Sadly, they have assumed correctly so far. This is not to say that Ronald Sider is a Marxist. It is also not to say that he isn't. That is for him to say, or should he be somewhat reticent to say, then it is for the reader to determine after a careful examination of Sider's writings. The problem is, as Chilton's book demonstrates, Sider's language is suspiciously vague at key points. Sider avoids getting down to specifics, his recommended program. As Chilton has titled another article that deals with Sider's theology, it is the case of the missing blueprints. Either Sider really doesn't know what ought to be done, in which case he should stop calling for unspecified radical social change, which is luring naive Christians into a movement that can be or may already have been captured by Marxists, or else he is remaining deliberately vague in order to confuse the Orthodox Christians who support financially the institutions that he is steadily converting to his version of liberation theology. Take your pick. Sider uses what appears to be orthodox Christian terminology, but he reaches socialistic yet not openly Marxist conclusions. He argues, for example, in the name of Christ, that a person who, as of 1977, earned over $1,800 a year, was earning too much. And that, same age, and that some agency, possibly the United Nations even, should redistribute the money above $1,800 per capita per year. Yet all this is a bit vague. He does not say that the UN must do it. He only says that the U.S. government spends foreign aid money to undergird repressive dictatorships. <coughs> Meaning, of course, non-Marxist dictatorships. So presumably the U.S. government cannot be trusted to do it since it has engaged in the political misuse of food aid. But neither can we rely heavily on private charitable agencies since giving to them makes rich people feel less guilty. Chilton found this choice quotation in an obscure Cider essay, an essay whose incredible conclusion Cider was wise enough not to expose to the broad base of Christians who bought rich Christians. Personal charity and philanthropy still permit the rich donor to feel superior, and it makes the recipient feel inferior and dependent. Institutional changes, on the other hand, give the oppressed rights and power. What does all this mean? It means that God's law for giving the tithe is not sufficient to create a godly social and economic order. 
As you will understand after reading Sider's books, or after reading this book, or after listening to the tapes of the debate, Ronald Sider does not have a lot of faith in biblical law. Unfortunately, he shares this opinion with the overwhelming majority of those who call themselves Christians today. Thus, Christians in positions of leadership have been unsuccessful in refuting Sider's position. How could they hope to refute him? They share too many of his presuppositions. Even the chaplain of the United States Senate, Dr. Richard Halverson, has assigned rich Christians in an age of hunger to his church's officers. Ron Sider is a very influential man. This is why I decided to have the Institute for Christian Economics finance the writing and publication of this book. The absurdities from the point of view both of both the Bible and economics of rich Christians in an age of hunger had to be exposed. Chilton's Style If something is ridiculous, it deserves ridicule. This was the opinion of Augustine with respect to those who reject the idea of the recent creation of the earth. For as it is not yet six thousand years since the first man, who is called Adam, are not those to be ridiculed rather than refuted, who try to persuade us of anything regarding a space of time so different from and contrary to the ascertained truth. Today it is those who proclaim the six-day creation position who receive ridicule, not infrequently from those within the church who have compromised with the Darwinian timescale. But Augustine's point is well taken. There comes a time for using ridicule, or even better, a bit of satirical humor. The trouble is, the intellectuals who have adopted at least a working relationship with the cosmologies of humanism resent satire, not to mention ridicule, when it is used by Orthodox Christians against those who proclaim the ridiculous in the name of Christ. The intellectual allies of the compromising Christians, as far as the compromisers are concerned, are the humanists who proclaim socialism, New Deal, Marxist, Third World, or whichever variety is popular on campus, and not the Orthodox Christians who proclaim biblical law. These intellectual and theological compromisers review the books in the major journals of Christian intellectual opinion. This is the reason why Chilton's book has drawn so much fire from the compromising critics. He uses a rapier wit to good effect. But this is considered unchristian. The critics forget that it was Christ who called the Pharisees sons of their father the devil. John 8.44 They forget that Peter publicly condemned Simon the sorcerer, who had made a profession of faith and had been baptized. Acts 8, 9 through 24. As he said to Simon, Thy heart is not right in the sight of God. 8:21b. Christians who have agreed with many of the socialist recommendations that are found in Sider's works may be tempted to ignore the biblical critique Chilton offers because they think Chilton's style is unfair. It does not matter what Chilton's style is if his criticisms are accurate. Those who have followed Sider in error are, more, are morally required to repent, whether or not Chilton's style is fair. And if they do not repent, then they are hypocrites, because it is not Chilton's style that offends them, it is his conclusions. 
His style may serve as a convenient excuse. The real reason for not accepting his conclusions has to do with the substance of his critique. I wrote a letter in InterVarsity Press to InterVarsity Press offering a to co-publish Chilton's book with them since they had co-published Cider's book with the Paulist Press. I received a reply on letterhead stationary from the editor, James W. Sire, dated August 26, 1981. His reply is indicative of the problem. His firm has made the book available to tens of thousands of students. InterVarsity has corrupted, no softer term will suffice, a generation of Christian youth. But he has not he was not interested in offering these people the only book length alternative presently available. Why not? The issue, he says, has nothing to do with economic theory. It has nothing to do with truth or falsehood of theology. No, indeed, the issue is style. It is strictly a matter of good taste. While I have not finished reading the book, Children's, in its entirety, I have familiarized myself with it sufficiently to realize that it is not a book which we feel we should co-publish with you. In addition to the detailed analysis of rich Christians in an age of hunger, which one could consider a tribute to the author and the publisher of the original work, I find the tone of the presentation rather more offensive than necessary, while Chilton occasionally says that he really isn't against cider qua Ronald Cider, the tone belies him. It is one thing to disagree with another Christian on economic theory, or even theology for that matter. It is quite another to turn the disagreement into personal attack. Hmm. The editor thinks Chilton's response is a tribute to Cider and InterVarsity Press. Would he also regard Peter's condemnation of Simon the Sorcerer as a tribute to Simon and the Dark One who had supplied him with his occult power? Should we regard Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago as a tribute to Lenin, Stalin, and the terrorist who made the Gulag a reality? Does every book that ever draws a published criticism from an Orthodox Christian automatically gain a tribute from its critic? Does the editor really believe this? If not, then he must be playing with words. He must be in basic agreement with Sider's conclusions. I regard Chilton's book as a testimony, not a tribute, to the suicidal intellectuals who write socialist books in the name of Christianity and who get a major campus evangelical organization like InterVarsity Press to put its Protestant imprimatur on it. I also regard Chilton's book as a testimony to the suicidal, naive donors, in some cases professionally naive, to InterVarsity and to the Christian colleges and seminaries that promote Cider's books in the classrooms. They will answer for much on the Day of Judgment. Conclusion we are at war. War. If Schumacher was completely correct, then the socialists are going to win it. But he was not a Christian, and he did not understand the underlying nature of the struggle between capitalism and socialism. The underlying struggle is between the kingdom of God and the society of Satan. Satan is going to lose, despite Soviet missiles, Cuban surrogate troops, liberation theology, Ronald Sider and InterVarsity Press. 
then we will have that most godly economic arrangements, rich Christians in an age of hungry socialists. To some extent, that is what we have today, which is why our domestic socialists in high positions continue to send them food that has been paid for with the tax dollars of Christians. Why then does Sider call for even more economic aid to the enemies of God? And why do so many of America's Christian intellectuals agree with him? There must be a reason, or perhaps several reasons. Chilton's book should provide you with a few reasonably good leads in your pursuit of the answers. And when you have those answers, or at least reasonably good guesses, you ought to rethink your present approach to charitable giving. Who precisely have you been subsidizing? You as a reader cannot escape your moral obligation of putting your knowledge into action. If you conclude after reading Chilton's analysis and after checking out the truth of his charges that Sider's theology represents a threat to Orthodox Christianity and the free market, what are you going to do about it? Which agencies that you support financially have opened their doors to Ron Sider or Sojourner's Magazine or The Other Side or the Jubilee Fund, or Evangelicals for Social Action, or any of the other outfits that are identified with cider or a cider-like theology of guilt manipulation? Are you still going to support them like a sheep going to the slaughter? Are you going to write a letter of protest, wait for the administration to do something, other than send you back a meaningless form letter, and then continue to send in your tax-deductible checks anyway? If you really want to waste your time but get an education in professional deviousness, drop a type letter to the president of your favorite Christian college or seminary and ask him if it is the official policy of the administration to dismiss any professor who advocates liberation theology, to head off any verbal shilly-shallying about definitions concerning what really constitutes liberation theology, just mention the books that take apart this heresy line by line. Liberation Theology, edited by Ronald Nash. Mil Milford, Michigan, Mott Media, 1984. Or James Shaw, S.J., Liberation Theology in Latin America, San Francisco, Ignatius Press, 1982. And if he should pretend that he fails to understand the relevance of your inquiry, Refer him to the hearings before the Subcommittee on Security and Terrorism, Senator Denton's Subcommittee on the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. Senate, Marxism and Christianity in Revolutionary Central America, October 18th and 19th, 1983. The conservatives on any given faculty tend to be fairly quiet. They go about their business diligently teaching their students the material related to the academic discipline they were trained to teach. The liberals, on the contrary, take every opportunity to proclaim the latest socialist fad, whether it relates to their course assignments or not, and whether or not they have any formal training or expertise in the area. This is as true on seminary campuses as on university campuses. Then why do the conservatives get in trouble? Why are they regarded as troublemakers? Simply... Liberals are troubled deeply by any contact, no matter how slight, with the truth. The truth divides the campus. This is the greatest sin in the eyes of the administrators 
who are very often liberals themselves, since faculties are careful to screen out conservatives far in advance. The administration wants to avoid trouble. Also, the division may surface off-campus, and administrators know that donors are likely to be more conservative than faculty members, and they may side with the handful of conservatives on the faculty. Result, the conservative faculty members get purged, unless they are so utterly innocuous that nothing that they say or do has any effect anywhere on campus or off. Conclusion, stop financing the enemy with your tax-deductible donations. If you want more information against the economics of liberation theology, see the book by Ronald Nash, Social Justice and the Christian Church, Mott Media, 1983. If you want to see the cries of anguish from self-professed Christians who promote liberation theology when someone shows that the Bible, what the Bible teaches, free enterprise economics, see the book edited by Robert Klaus, Wealth and Poverty, Four Christian Views of Economics, InterVarsity Press, 1984. My essay makes the case for capitalism and three others scream bloody murder at the very idea. You will see the bankruptcy of the liberation theology position when you read the responses of Art Gish and John Gladwin. The third critic is a run-of-the-mill Keynesian, not a liberationist. For a good account of the Sandinistas, to whom the Jubilee Fund sent the money in 1979, see Nicaragua, Christians Under Fire, a book by a defector who was converted to Christianity after the Revolution. Box 520, Garden City, Michigan, Puebla Institute, 1984, $9. It's an ugly story. Remember, this is written back in 1984. And if you really want to cause problems for campus liberals and humanists, get a copy of my book, 75 Bible Questions Your Instructors Pray You Won't Ask. The ICE will work with you to send as many copies as you want to students at any Christian college in America at a very cheap rate per student. For information on this program of student education, write 75 Questions Project, Institute for Christian Economics, P.O. Box 8000, Tyler, Texas 75711. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.